0: Thrusters won't stop firing. I think
1: I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green.
0: My last nav check put me on the grange point four. This is control, be we'll radio. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency.
2: Sits and zips, captains and commanders, I'm back! Yep, no typhoons keeping this immortal down, and you've tuned to the Guard Frequency, and as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the Guard. This is episode 142 of the Best Damn Space hymn Podcast Ever, and it was recorded on Friday, October 21st, and made available for download Tuesday, October 25th, over at GuardFrequency.com. I'm Jeff. I'm Ken Shadow.
0: And I'm Ostron. And as always, in the audio booth, making sure we all sound coherent and not like a toddler drunk on cough mixture is Henry. So what do we have in store this week, Shadow? In this
3: week's Squawk Box, well, the this chances so of anything coming, coming from Mars are a million to one, one they say.
2: Alright, that's enough.
3: Alright. <laughs> the chances of Europeans getting there? Even slimmer. Next, we check out what news from your favorite space sims has hit the flight deck as we cover some good stuff post con from verse to verse, and a rundown from the Polaris Q&A for Star Citizen, Elite colon Dangerous colon Guardians official release date, and news of a small patch, Infinity colon Battlescape shows off its latest work in progress shots and has a busy couple of weeks with netcode. After that we're debating a little of GTA and our space sims before finally tuning into the feedback loop and letting you join in the conversation.
0: That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what's coming through the Squawk Box. Hey, you boys need a carrier around here? Uh,
2: everything's under control.
0: Situation normal.
2: Cryptor, crypto, Crypto, this is Jeff saying welcome to the Squawk Box, everyone. So... After multiple experiments over almost two decades, it has been confirmed that guard frequency shares a key characteristic with the next frontier of space exploration. That's right, both we, and Mars, hate the metric system. The first evidence of the Red Planet's disdain for the Base 10 measurement came in 1999 when the Mars Climate Orbital burned up in the atmosphere because of an issue with converting English measurements such as pounds, inches, and feet, to the metric measurements of avocados, crumbola, and rutabagas. Since that time, the European Space Agency, made up of nations that exclusively use the metric system, have attempted several missions to Mars. Their main issue has been getting a lander on the surface. In 2003, they lost contact with the Beagle 2 lander. The problem there was that its solar panels didn't open, so it landed, but didn't have any power to communicate that fact. More recently, the ESA's ExoMars Shia Pirelli lander dropped out of contact on its way to the surface of Mars. At this point, the only thing Mission Control can confirm is that it did land, since they had maintained contact with the module all the way down. Whether it landed and had a malfunction, or hit a rock, or fell into the crater is something that may not be known for a while. The ESA didn't determine the fate of the Beagle 2 until 2015, 12 years after the initial landing attempt. This is concerning for the European group not only because of the possible loss of the lander, but because the mission was a test of sorts for their plans to land a rover on Mars in 2020. Several members of the team are now worried that the failure may jeopardize their attempts to secure funding for the 2020 mission. The silver lining on this situation is that the ExoMars orbiter that delivered the lander module established a stable orbit around Mars. That orbiter's primary mission is to analyze traces of methane in Mars' atmosphere to determine if it's being produced by some form of life. If that turns out to be true, the methane in the atmosphere could also indicate that somewhere lurking beneath the planet's red exterior is
0: a healthy supply of Martian baked beans. Mm. I wonder if they're tangy. So on the on the subject of the actual topic, the problem here was that you know how when a when anything is coming through the atmosphere, you lose radio contact until they get through.
2: Yeah, I understand that because it's uh, sets up a zone around when it's it, it's like a bubble and it, nothing can get through while it's it's going through the
0: atmosphere.
3: Right. Yeah, it's usually due to ionization.
0: Yeah, Mars' atmosphere is a hell of a lot thinner than ours, but there's still enough of it to create that ionization. So they had contact with the lander all the way up until it hit that dead spot when it was passing through the Mars' atmosphere. And then they were expecting to receive an all-clear signal after when they assumed it would have landed, and that all-clear signal never showed up. But they were able to communicate with everybody else that has something orbiting Mars and somehow they, the data from those other observable like orbiters said, yeah, it landed, but we can't tell what happened to it after that. So it's on the surface, but whether it's on the surface intact and just not broadcasting or on the surface in multiple pieces is uh, remains to be seen. Well,
2: it sounds to me like the ESA needs to hire the NASA to build
3: their satellites for them. <laughs> just, just drive their rover over to the site and see what happened.
0: Wasn't one of the private space agencies targeting a Mars-like manned mission to yeah. either start in 2020?
3: That's SpaceX.
0: Yeah. they want to get it off the ground in 2020.
3: Well, they—I don't know about—I don't—I don't remember what the the, the exact I, dates were, but well, I they think were, they um,
2: wanted to do a probe by 2018 and then do a full mission by 2020. That's the way I thought I read the. Heart. Well, they
3: did—they did that big press release recently with all of their—I can't remember the name of the the new rocket system, but a new rocket system that's meant to be interplanetary.
0: Okay, so yeah, I was kind of surprised because I knew the European group obviously wasn't as far ahead as us or, or maybe even the Russians, but I didn't realize they were that far behind not to put too fine a point on it.
3: Well, uh, NASA has a long history of over-engineering their projects. You know, they, they build so many um, redundancies and have so much simulation that the chances of a failure in many of these cases for, for NASA are, are pretty minuscule, actually, right? Like, they were talking about the um, I can't remember which Mars one it was the one with the guy with the Mohawk <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they had interviews with those guys, and and you know, a lot of energy in the room because they were doing a live broadcast. And vehicle actually touched down, and had that the gantry lower the, the vehicle, and all worked right. You know, they were everybody was cheering and everything like that. And one of the reporters asked one of the NASA engineers, "Are you are you relieved?" And the guy goes, "Oh no, you know, there was a ninety seven point eight nine percent chance it would be a success, so you know, I'm just happy." <laughs> So Yeah, they do so many simulations and have so many backups for these things. It's just crazy. But And I don't know if ESA has the same level of paranoia that has institutionally been built into NASA. It's actually kind of a problem with NASA versus SpaceX isn't having these barriers. And so they're able to iterate and they're able to move a lot faster and pivot a lot faster on a lot of their designs than NASA can. But at the same time, you know...
0: It it might be why their landers are blowing up.
3: Exactly, right? And so institutionally at NASA, they really want to get in the middle, right? They want to become less paranoid about their designs. But... (laughs) They, they don't want to get as startupy as, say, SpaceX is, right? So they're trying to get—they're trying to find a happy medium now. It's a big struggle within the, uh, the organization itself.
2: Red Cena heard something that you might find interesting to others listening on the spectrum. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the plight there. Speed 175,
1: Port Bay, hands-on approach, trigger screen, call the bomb. Don't get technical with me.
3: Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for October 21st, 2016. $129.4 million, 1.573 million registered accounts, and 1.111 million ships in the UE fleet. We didn't do the change calculations because of the odd week, but since CitizenCon's SIG's funding has increased about $4.1 million.
2: Well, after Citizen's Con, CIG released a special reverse verse, Eric Chiron Davis hosted with Chris Roberts, Aaron Roberts, and Tony Zervik, John Erskine, and Brian Chambers. The video is bursting with goodness, gushing from the gray matter of these gaming goliaths.
3: One of the major topics discussed was how, with Star Citizen, they want everything to be simulated and determined by a generally realistic system. This means that there is a broad base that everything works on. They are making the foundation robust and deep, so when they want to put something in the game, they don't have to code and decide how it affects the world. It just fits right in. On NPCs on ships, one question was what role each person would let the NPC do. While each answer was fun, the important takeaway was that everyone seemed to have no concerns about playing in a big ship solo with NPCs.
0: The next video released was a behind-the-scenes on planning the CitizenCon Squadron 42 demo, also known as why we didn't see the Squadron 42 footage. The timeline proceeded roughly like this. At two weeks before CitizenCon, two teams were working on two demos, Squadron 42 and the Homestead demo. And they were feeling pretty good about both, except for the sandworm. They were nervous about that when Chris made it clear he wasn't joking. At six days to go, they were having physics issues with people sitting down in Squadron 42. By T-minus four days, Chris was still unhappy with that and the new animations in Homestead. With three days left, they discovered all of the indirect shading on the particles was corrupt. The Squadron 42 Idris was there, but it looked awful, although keep in mind this is Chris Roberts' awful. In the end, they decided to drop the Squadron 42 demo in favor of putting all of the teams on the Homestead demo in order to fix the problems there. And we all saw the results at CitizenCon. As they
2: have done with most new ships in the past year, CIG released a series of Q&A articles on the Polaris Corvette. Most of the questions were variations of on a theme of what can I do with this ship. CIG's responses all emphasize that the Flaris is not supposed to be a jack of all trades. Using this ship effectively means that you should have an idea of a specific purpose before setting out. It does not have modular capability, so you can't buy one, use it as a cargo hauler for a while, and then stick some torpedo bays in it and go hunting cap ships. They actually discourage trying to use it as a hauler. It's got a decently sized cargo hold, but they said there are
3: better ships for the job. Sig also pointed out that it doesn't come with any smaller craft. So if you want to fill that hangar bay, you'll need to keep shopping or find a friend. However, it does come with a med bay. So in addition to a torpedo boat, the Polaris would function well as a search and rescue craft. For those interested in the specific questions and answers, including the detailed clarification of the ship's weapons and hardpoints, links will be in the show notes.
0: After reading the q and I was thinking, like, Guard frequency as an organization, I think, would work very well with a couple of corvettes as like the main center of the fleet, rather than trying to make it some
3: big ship. Well, it would be like a you'd have like a like a corvette uh, escorting an Endeavor or something like that, right? So you'd have that spawn yeah. point.
2: Well, with a mod uh, with a med bay, I don't think there's a hangar on it. You couldn't spawn in it, I don't think.
0: There's a hanger on the Polaris, but it's a small one. Like, you can only fit one fighter. I don't even know if you could fit a Cutlass Red. That ship may be too big.
3: Right, right. But the Endeavor is a spawn point. So, if you had the Corvettes escorting the Endeavor, is what I was saying. On the Squadron 42 thing, I talked to a number of devs at Citizen Con, and they were all particularly bummed about not showing it. I mean, this is obviously pre video, so we got to see, you know, what they were trying to nail down a little bit in that video. But they were all very um, keen on how close the demo was, right? So I think we can expect to see that in a very, very short order, like either November or at the latest, you know, Christmas stuff they do in December.
0: Yeah, I have to wonder if the demo was a victim of Chris's perfectionism.
2: Everything's a victim of Chris's perfectionism. What are you talking about, Willis? I mean, come on.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I just, I wonder if they if they had gone through with what they had, like, how devastating would it really have been?
3: You never know. I think, um, yeah. I mean, some of the things were probably niggles that he um, probably pointed out, right, that may have taken time away from things that might have been the actual showstoppers. But at the end of the day, it, it could be anything. Uh, some of the things he pointed out in the, the Homestead demo, I would have been... I would have been depressed, not depressed, I would have been disappointed if, if they had gone through with some of the things I saw in the Homestead demo that they had actually ended up fixing because they had that time. Like the pre Previs worm that they had where it just kind of popped out of the ground and flailed around a little bit, you know? I thought that would have been kind of, Yeah. <laughs> that would have been not as impressive.
0: I mean, the Homestead demo definitely benefited from the extra time and effort they put into it. I just wonder if, like... Was the Squadron 42 demo really that bad?
3: Yeah, and they, ha- they had all sorts of problems with the last year's CitizenCon Squadron 42 Idris walkthrough. And, um, you know, who knows what, the, you know, Chris made comments in the videos about NPCs walking into doors and that demo it's still being present in the the demo. He, they were trying to vet for CitizenCon and being disappointed about that.
0: Yeah, maybe it's because it's so close to release theoretically.
3: Well, it's not close to release. Did you did you guys catch the bullets on what that what it actually said about how about what that demo meant? Yeah. So I mean, everything's in gray box. This is they're they're, they're taking one mission set or what they called it, a chapter one chapter to um, to completion to see what it does. I mean, the rest of them are potentially, I mean, they're all playable, it sounds like, but we, we don't know the level of work that's left. I think that's really un, unknown. There could be many alien ships that are just flying cubes at this point that we, we don't know about.
2: Well, I, I hope they're not going to, I mean, the demonstration are, the demo, when you say demo, I'm thinking two different things here. When we saw the, San, the, the Homestead video, that to me was not a demo. And I'm hoping that We also will get to see a Squadron 42 demonstration video and they're not talking about releasing a demo, the first mission demo as a playable thing. I really just would like to see some of the work in progress, you know,
3: that would get me hyped. The the, the video that is missing, right, is supposed to be this flushed out chapter and it's supposed to be an hour of gameplay and hopefully, again, we'll see that soon. I mean that's a lot of that's a that's a big video that's a lot of a lot of gameplay from the game itself. So I'm 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 excited about the Polaris Corvette and um, all of their NPC stuff excites me too. I know some people are really hot and heavy on trying to minimize the impact of NPCs, and uh, I think it's fine with the minimization of a, a ship's effectiveness with NPCs. But I'm I'm heartened to see that some of these big ships you'll be able to fly. Semi solo, or with uh, you know just a couple of friends on a Corvette here.
0: Yeah, I think pe- most people with the NPCs are just worried about you know one person being able to outfit an entire fleet of ships with NPCs and just you know rule the galaxy all on their own. Which CIG has pretty much nixed that possibility in multiple locations.
3: The other the other thing with NPCs is that if we end up with Instancy limits on the number of real people sans NPCs in an environment Will never get to the point where we have big capital battles without lots of NPCs So they've talked about the number of people that crew the Idris or the number of people crew the um, The Corvettes, I mean if you've got a you've got a couple of destroyers and a couple of um, pegasus and things like that in a system, right? if, If those all had to be crewed those like a single ship would be almost the entire instance limit I think this this idea behind us having um, lots of NPCs to flesh these things out, assuming they don't contribute to the instance limit, at the end of the day, this enables us to have much more epic battles than we would be able to have otherwise.
0: Yeah, although they never really finalized how the instancing was going to work, at least not to us, but I imagine that's quite far down the list of things to do at this point. The Guardians are upon us this week in Elite Dangerous, as Update 1.7-2.2 is now officially set for launch Tuesday, October 25th alongside this episode of Guard Frequency. Clearly, they have excellent taste in release dates. As we've covered before, this release will bring to the live servers features like ship-launched fighters, hiring of NPC pilots, passenger mission gameplay, and the new Beluga Liner, which is flipping gigantic by the way, larger than an Imperial Cutter.
2: Speaking of which, Reddit user FNUK of Elite Dangerous blog, link in the show notes, posted a new ship size comparison chart in a blueprint style that really shows off the in-game scaling, from the SRV all the way up to the new Beluga. He has a whole series of these ship blueprints on his site, eventually representing all the ships currently in Elite.
3: Additionally, there has been significant discussion on the forums and Reddit about the final implementation of changes to the way the various exploration scanners work. Currently, there is a division between those who believe that, for immersion purposes, system scans should not reveal information about planetary surfaces, and those who would like at least some surface features to be revealed by the system scan so that these details can inform them as to whether some of the bodies discovered might be worth a visit. Frontier's lead designer, Sandro, has asked for feedback on the issue in a thread on the official forums and the link to that thread will be provided in our show notes.
2: I have a question because I, I saw this in my in my email feed and I, and I go, who decides what immersion is? I mean if we were to think realistically in the future and the, the value of our technology and the scope of it and you know the functionality of it, wouldn't a scan of a surface reveal a lot of detail? We already have technology that can do
0: that now. It's not surface scans they're talking about. It's system scans. So my read of it is these people want to be able to jump into a system, scan it, and in addition to getting all the planetary body information, they want to see significant features on the planetary surfaces without going to the individual planets.
1: That's what they initially did when they changed the system map, was to make it work just like that. Um, But then people said, what's the point of surface scans at all? You're not going way out into space to look for materials that you're going to drop off to an engineer in, in the bubble. It kind of eliminates the need for that surface scanner when you're getting all that data up front. The argument is we need things to do anyway. Why are we making exploration a single button press every time you jump in right next to the star, you get all the data and move on?
2: okay well let's let's be realistic there then that's not that's not a cause of immersion that's a cause of of game time sinks and i and i can buy that when you jump into a system you should do a a scan and you should get maybe tagged that there is some anomalous or or something on a planet that would require you to go there and and give it a deeper surface scan you know and that i can see and that i would actually vote for because I get that you don't want to just one-stop, jump, one-stop, jump, you know, kind of thing going on.
1: Right, but what they tried to implement was something where you'd actually have to jump in, scan the system to find where the stellar bodies are, target each one, fly towards it, and do a surface scan, and then you'd get to see what the surface features are. The problem is knowing which one of those you want to fly to and do that surface scan. If all you get is a solid color ball on on your map, you know nothing about it except where it is kind of in with in relation to the habitable zone. I, th- I think a nice compromise would be to jump in, use your advanced discovery scanner to see where everything is, but get a colored picture of the planets and where they are, because you'd kind of see something looking at them from a distance with a scanner. And then when you get close, let us zoom all the way up and rotate the planets and, and look at the surface features. You can do a surface scan from light seconds away. You don't have to be in orbit.
2: Right. Right. Uh, You could even go so far as your computer telling you resource detected or anomaly detected. Absolutely. Uh, And then you get an idea, oh, this is worth investigating. And you fly towards it, like you said, within a few light seconds, you can do a deep scan. That, to
1: me, would be something that I could get behind. Once again, it's something else to do also. Elite's definitely hurting for things to do when you're way out there. And I I hate to say making the game more difficult or take more time just for the sake of more to do. That's not really what they're doing, they're just kind of making that exploration deeper. You have to fly somewhere to to get data. I kind of support the decision with what they're doing. It's been a busy
0: couple of weeks for the folks over at Inove Studios, the creative minds behind Infinity Battlescape. Efforts to overcome the netcode issues have progressed very well, although they're not ready to release it to the end users just yet as there's still a bit of client-side prediction and latency compensation to be installed. All the netcode fixes are scheduled for the next patch, and the improvements should be fairly noticeable, or so Keith tells us.
2: Netcode issues aside, the majority of iNovi's time has been spent on mock-ups, particularly space stations, a more final version of the cockpit head, and the game's main menu. Once again, the theme is avant-garde, 1980s sci-fi, chic, Crossed with postmodern future history tech all wrapped up in a Renaissance-esque bouquet of simplicity and decadence. With just a hint of Art Nouveau and a twist of line, if Sean were here, he'd no doubt be letting you all know
3: how authentic and artisanal it is. As well as painting enough mock-ups to ensure a healthy demand of Sherman Williams products, there's been a couple of new launcher patches. Fixing a pesky runtime bug that some users were getting, which was causing the launcher to force close. Unfortunately, this means the pledge upgrade system has been pushed back down on the calendar, but if this means players can actually play the game, then it's a sacrifice they're willing to make. I think the the art there for the um, space station, yeah, I guess there's multiple space stations, is very uh, comes up with the Art Nouveau 80 sci-fi.
0: Yeah, it does have that feel, the, the long pointed spires and the boxy construction.
3: I can easily imagine a uh, xenomorph running through those corridors.
0: I like the shot of the... I don't know if that's supposed to be water or if it's just very flat ground, but the flying parallel with the city on fire looks kind of neat. Yeah, it looks nice. Those screenshots will be in the show notes for those who can't visualize it just based on our highly detailed and immersive descriptions. So, this is a a special bulletin that was not mentioned in the summary, because it is almost as as close to late-breaking news as we can get here at Guard Frequency. This isn't news from any one game, but it has the potential to affect a large number of the titles we cover here at Guard Frequency, particularly since so many of them are in development. Beginning at midnight on October 21st, or around the time we're recording this, SAG-AFTRA, or the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, has declared a strike. For those who are not aware, SAG-AFTRA is the collective bargaining group that represents all video game voice and performance capture artists.
2: The disagreement centers around the claim that the video game industry has basically not updated their policies for voice actors or screen capture artists, To account for the massive boom in game featuring performance capture and truly excessive amounts of voice performance. To give you an idea of the disparity, consider Squadron 42. Chris Roberts says that the script for the game was 1244 pages. In the film industry, one page of script equals one minute of screen time. For the voice actors on a show like Star Wars Rebels, the episode script might be 30 or 40 pages. Pixar animated feature scripts will would be in the area of two to 300 pages. The existing agreements simply do not have provisions to
3: ensure fair treatment for the voice actors when the scripts are that large. The SAG-AFTRA group has been attempting to negotiate a contract for the past two years and they finally called foul. Practically speaking, this means that any games that hadn't started production before February 17, 2015 which is over a year and a half ago, just lost any voice and performance capture artists they were working with, including games in development through Activision, Electronics Arts, Interactive, and other big names. For those interested in further details, a link to the official strike notice from SAG-AFTRA will be in the show notes.
0: If My internal development calculator is at all accurate. This means that the Christmas season of 2017 may be extremely messed up because
3: of this. It won't matter because everybody will be playing Squadron 42 at that point.
0: Well, obviously.
3: <laughs> I think I think more likely that you're going to get a bunch of novice voice actors <laughs> strike-breaking um, and, and being stuck in the games rather than the games being delayed themselves. I wonder how that... Well, I mean, they don't... It depends on how the contracts are written between SAG-AFTRA and the companies in, in charge. In, in the film industry some directors and studios will sign deals with the screen actors guild and things like that, where they can't hire people outside of them. And so there'll be like a, I can't remember the term. Um, I have a friend who does set locations and stuff, but uh, there's a term for people that are, that either only recruit from the screen actors guild or people that recruit outside of it. Right. And there's all these weird sanctions where if you're in the guild, you're really not supposed to work on film on films that recruit out of the guild and, uh, and vice versa. But, there's a lot of weird loopholes and linens. and can like things like that. So it's it's kind of fuzzy, um, but there are implications to, to it either way.
2: Well, I wonder how it will affect uh, 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 other programs too. Like my friend and a friend of the show's uh, Paul over at HCS, who does the voice packs and gets all those actors to you know do his voice pack stuff so
0: it looks like this is mostly just official video game development because it was really specific yeah if
3: you're not a, if you're not a big company you likely don't have any particular impact from this i would i would think i mean you can unless you have a contract with sag after or something like that or there's some sort of sanction saying you're not allowed to work for a company
0: yeah i'm guessing CIG probably had to work with these people given the talent they've secured.
3: I think most of their voice capture is all done though at this point at least for squadrons
0: Oh yeah I, I don't think they're in trouble because of this but it'll be interesting to see how this plays
3: out it would it would probably impact their PU voice capture stuff more than squadrons at this point if that if it affects them at all I guess it really all depends on on what their policies are and contracts are but um, I would like to encourage cloud Imperium games to think of the potential fan voice contributors instead of uh, these expensive actors anyway.
2: That was shameless, absolutely shameless. (laughs) Uh So now it's time for news we didn't use. Star Citizen is offering a Super Hornet free fly
3: through October 30th. The long awaited patch for Descent Underground, with the features being teased over the proven grounds for over the last month, is finally public. This includes cool VR improvements, new maps, new game modes, and even a new 3D reticle.
0: Back on October 11th, the official Kickstarter for Dual Universe wrapped up. They raked in 565,983 euros, which exceeded their funding goal, which was 500,000, but it wasn't enough to grab any of the stretch goals they'd put up. Nova Cork is currently exploring ways to accept further funding donations.
2: Although not strictly a space sim, a new Star Control game is in the works named Star Control Origins. Check out the show notes for more information.
3: Check out Around the Verse 3.10 for more information about the Polaris, the Ursa rover, and how the devs wanted to work on the Crash Javelin. The Descent
0: guys released the first of a new lore video series that explores the world history and backstory to the game. The video is done in a documentary Ken Burns style and starts to give hints of the story to come.
2: And we missed it when it was first surfaced, but Limit Theory's developer Josh has released another post. More of the same. I'm working on it. Please stand by. Links to the post are in the show notes.
3: I'm really hopeful for the future Descent Underground story stuff. Uh, The current story video is... You know it's very um, early days kind of stuff and nothing really to the point where they have the drones they really explain why everybody's in the asteroids yet but uh, it's done really a really nice documentary style by Michael Moreland and and makes me hopeful for the future videos and the new descent patch is cool. I just tried it out today. Almost all of the MMO style space sims have or are planning a system to track player behavior. Whether it's a reputation, karma, or affinity for kittens, the basic idea is that the system tracks a player's behavior based on in-game standards. In general, everyone is given the benefit of the doubt and starts as a good doobie. But the more people you attack without provocation or property you steal, the farther your rating plummets. In most cases, the idea is that plummeting reputation limits your gameplay options. In the more immersive systems, it restricts you from access to certain areas or prompts NPCs to react differently to one's presence, either by paying extra special attention or outright attacking you on sight. Some questions have been raised about the implementation of such a system where space sims are concerned. One argument is that the reputation should be attached to ships rather than players. This would allow for a Han Solo situation. If he's flying the Falcon, everyone knows he's a smuggler. When he's in the Imperial Shuttle, nobody's the wiser unless they board the ship. The scenario of a legitimate griefer avoiding punishment by ship jumping would be mitigated by the fact that in most of these games, acquiring extra ships is not simply a matter of respawning, and in the worst case, the game devs can simply step in and deal with the problem. But that's way too permissive for people on the other side of the argument. They argue that the reputation system is to help players police themselves. Most of them believe that the game devs either shouldn't be or aren't able to do the policing of the players. The reputations have been tied to player accounts, so repeat offenders are clearly identifiable all of the time, and players know how to steer clear if they don't want to fight or hassle. If players want to lead double lives, their solution is that the game should allow for easy methods of creating one or two secondary characters. Gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate whether reputation ratings should be tied to ships or players. Ostron has been petitioning Tony to campaign on a platform of getting insurance companies to stop tracking his driving record based on his name, Well, Jeff can't afford more than one vehicle anyway and is a constant victim of road ragers. So Ostron, why do the reputation ratings need to stay with the ships and not the players?
0: Well, as the common argument goes, it's all about the immersion. If you're flying a ship that takes out a bunch of helpless colonists and then the ship gets identified, you shouldn't carry that reputation with you if you ditch the ship and go to another one that hasn't been involved in an attack. It helps with creating the double life characters.
3: Jeff, your response?
2: Oh, Osteron, you ignorant slut. The question is deeper than that. Your actions as a player is your reputation as a player. Your character, your what drives you. Those are all things that you can't change just because you change a, sh- a ship. The Han Solo analogy is flawed in the fact that Han Solo is still Han Solo, whether he's flying the Falcon or flying an Imperial shuttle. He's still Han Solo.
3: Mr. Osteron, how do you respond?
0: That's a good point, but... The thing is, you're discussing the metagame issues. Player reputations can be handled and discussed outside of the game. The reputation system affects gameplay. It's not supposed to be affecting the reputation of the players as people. It's affecting the reputation of them as avatars in the game. If they're seen as avatars in the game as behaving a certain way, they may be perfectly nice people on the outside.
3: Jeff, how do you respond?
0: It's been my experience in a lot of cases a player's
2: personality carries over into their game personality and as such that, you know, the ones that go and torture kittens are the ones that are going to be griefing you in the game. And The fact that that you can walk away from that kind of activity just by changing your clothes or changing your ship is kind of
3: disturbing. Thank you, gentlemen. That was a great debate. The moderator's personal opinion is that the situation is, and with many of these debates, is some sort of happy medium. I intend to have good characters and bad characters. and I, I, would, I would hate for my bad characters to never be able to, to get around things if they needed to get around things and be uh, locked into specific <laughs> bad area sectors or something like that. So I, I would like some mechanism of obscuring my identity. It doesn't need to mean it's only on a one ship that I get rid of, I can get rid of, but, you know, it would be nice to, to have the ability to change identities or pay to clear my name or swap out ID tags, things like that.
2: Let's look at this from a different, uh, you know, and I, and, and I was taking the bad side because um, it got me thinking the other day. Players are not the only things that have a reputation. Let's let's. When I say Millennium Falcon, you don't just think of Han Solo. You think of the Millennium Falcon. I think that part of the answer is that a ship can gain or lose reputation, and that it's not
0: necessarily tied to the player. Right. But is that something that would need to be mechanically tracked in game?
2: I think so. I think let, let's take the idea. Yeah, I did the I did the Kessel Run in fourteen parsecs. That kind of thing. That's a that's a, something that a ship and a player can gain rep on. And I think that can be tracked. I think you can become, I think a ship can be, I mean, if you look at some of the best space uh, movies or, you know, a ship is an important character as well as the character or the pilot that flies it.
3: Well, Star Citizen has, you know, the, the beginnings of this in some respects where they have the starship manufacturers that have certain stigmas on them right? Even though, for instance, Drake ships can be used for things outside of piracy, there's been uh, lore articles where people have been given the, the the short shrift because they're flying a Drake ship, right? Yeah, I agree with you though, Jeff, that, I mean, that would be an interesting flavor thing where if, um, you know, again, you have a ship, you name your ship, you fight in a lot of battles with a specific ship, you know, it doesn't get blown up for, you know, because you're such a cool pilot. When you, when you dock at a port, maybe you have flavor text and things like that where oh you're flying the grim Fang right. or whatever exact.
2: Right? That, see that see that would bring an interesting dynamic into the game you know you, you not only yourself but your ship earns or gains uh, you know gains either good or, or or you know oh no it's the dread pirate Robert and he's flying the uh, whatever he, uh, whatever the ship was called in the, you know the dread pirate Robert you know the dread pirate Robert <laughs> I know what they say. if you think about it it was never the same guy but the ship was always uh, the renowned. Uh,
3: what was it called? Anyway, you, you get where I'm going. You know, I I, I I get what you're going, and I agree. But I think the, the real key of the debate here is that does it change? It, it may change how people potentially respond to you, but does it really affect? Say, oh, I see something that looks like this bad ship. I'm going to attack it, no matter who's flying that ship. And that that's well, the that's real the, debate, th- right?
2: That's the beauty of it, though. That's the risk that you take when you you know when you take a ship of yours and it earns you know a reputation or earns that uh, or you know you jump into a sector and everybody runs away because oh no the the dread whatever is is uh, jumped into the sector or you know it could it really i think could enhance that that I, it'd be something totally different from the from the reputation systems
0: that we have seen in so many games that were just that just failed yeah, well, that's that's the thing, though. They have to design the reputation system around that in this case, too, because if the player's reputation is visible simultaneously with the ships, that ruins the whole effect.
2: Right, and and I agree. I mean, you didn't, as a moviegoer, you knew Han Solo was flying the Imperial shuttle, but the Imperials didn't know that. Right. Well,
3: I think, if, again, if we're talking about the using Star Citizen as as a reference here, they've talked about how players will have IDs too and that you'll be able to forge IDs and things like that. So, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily see Han Solo flying the, Imper- the Imperial Shuttle. You'd see Stormtrooper 757, which Han Solo has put in at his fake ID flying right. the Imperial Shuttle, right? It would be interesting to see... Uh, Like, for instance, let's say I'm using my real ID and I, you know, I'm a good guy and I find a bad ship and then I fly that into a populated sector. Maybe I don't get attacked, but it tarnishes my ID by being seen in a criminal ship or something like that.
2: Or, Or what if you were recovering that ship and bringing it to the authorities because you found it in space and you could put out a broadcast like an IFF. That said, you know, that, that generated your ID and because they know you, because you have a reputation of doing such things, then they know. And then your renown even goes up that much further because you brought in this notorious
3: ship. There's a lot of corner cases, I think, that that, <laughs> that gets really complicated. But yeah, no, I I, I, no, I agree that that sounds like an interesting system.
2: I love the game we're building.
0: Yep, there it is. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, now you know our thoughts on it, we wanna hear yours. So this week's community question, should karma slash reputation ratings follow ships and allow players to ditch the hot vehicle to maintain legitimate and illegitimate interests on with one character? Or does it need to follow the player so everyone knows what side of the law people are on, regardless of what they're flying? Maybe you like the system Jeff came up with. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on the show thread at guardfrequency.com.
0: Now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendlies, So let's just be friendly!
3: Some say all he is is dust in the wind, and that his great-grandfather was born from Martian baked beans. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he helped put together this week's feedback. Community question, CitizenCon, did we miss anything? What excited you? What confused you? What made you angry? How awesome was Kinshado's costume?
0: Pretty awesome.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It was impressive. Blush, blush.
0: Also, thank you for resisting the urge to sing the first part of that.
2: Yeah, Really.
0: (laughs) Brandon Tulliver
2: writes in and says it was probably the most positive I felt about the game myself. I mostly just harassed Shiv that the game he made me kickstart was going to be a giant letdown.
3: Ryan Reeves says this show concerned me as the high bar for quality was lowered on episode 141. It was obvious the hosts were not in the know much on the subject they were discussing and it was painful to listen to. They kept calling this and con. James Con admitted they didn't pay attention to the presentation, specifically the tools part, and didn't have but one caller lined up. I've been listening since episode 100, and as clear the guy that was absent makes the show, as the two hosts in the show couldn't hold muster to make good radio. I hope things will improve when the absent host returns, whatever his name is.
2: <laughs> I guess. <laughs> if you've been listening to
0: it e- since episode 100, you ought to know my name by now. <laughs> um. Sean Newboy writes in and says Wonderful show, everyone. Love the costume, Kin Shadow. Simply awesome. As for Citizen Con, just released the game. I'm running out of fruity Odie bars waiting.
2: Hey, what hey, what are are my Odie fruity bar? Odie bar! Okay, I feel real bad. My absence was not planned. It was not a request. It was not a vacation. It was an act of nature. I'm sorry to let my all my listeners down. I appreciate all the comments and because it was an act of nature, my
3: records still intact. Only another god can keep the immortal down.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but however this show does well even without me here as much as i appreciate ryan's comments that affect um it was a particular con show there was no script involved i would have loved to talk about some things especially organizational tools and stuff that i really wanted that's been on my mind for a long time i really miss doing this show so i'm I'm going to go to the producers and ask for another call-in show. Hopefully we'll line up some more people this time and, and give you something that you're, you can sink your teeth into. And, um, you know, be sure to call in. Make yourself available and, and, and you know, state what you want to state and talk about what you thought was relevant about that. And we'll see what we can
3: do. I'd like to apologize also. My, my absence last week was not long-term planned. I ended up with a... Um relatively short-notice kid thing I had to go take care of. So, sorry about that, too.
0: So, just briefly, since you were our on-site representative, is there anything in particular that was noteworthy, uh, that was sort of exclusive to those present?
3: There's been a lot of articles on Reddit about a lot of the discussions and bars and stuff like that. I don't think there's any particular news that was really there. I had a lot of interesting conversations with a variety of devs. Um, and met some really cool people but uh, at least for me the entire event was about the community and I'd say that at least as far as games as I'm concerned Star Citizen has one of the, the best communities out there I mean if you're if you're into the game you're into the game in many respects and so Everybody was just a blast to hang out with. I met all sorts of cool fans. I met a bunch of streamers. I met a bunch of devs and fans that became devs and, and everything. And everybody drank way too much alcohol like three nights in a row and had a lot of really neat parties and stuff. So, really, this thing it, almost to me, Citizen is less about the news about Star Citizen in my mind, and it's more about a giant community celebration coming together and saying, this is great. Um, I think the November live stream they usually do, which they also call an anniversary live stream because it's in both ends of the crowdfunding campaign anniversaries. I think that one would be much more information rich compared to what we were at CitizenCon. So um, I have some hopes there because that one's purely a live stream rather than any kind of fan event. But again, for me, CitizenCon, it was a fan celebration. It was all about the community.
0: In general feedback, Sayoldian writes in and says, No, Jeff, the world is ending. The Immortal One has fallen. Woe is us.
3: I haven't fallen.
0: Help, I can't get up. No,
3: seriously, I'm fine. (laughs) Lando Fishkiller says, Hey guys, love the show. I listen every week. I think you have mentioned Sharkateer enough for a while. Every time you say his name on the podcast, his head swells. If you ever saw what he looked like, you know that's a bad thing.
0: Yeah, that's a kind of convoluted. Sharkateer became a Patreon, but he entered his Patreon with his real name, which we read on the show after he pledged. And then he submitted feedback where he mentioned that he became a Patreon, but it was as Sharketeer. So we credited him again. Oh. So I, we oh, yeah. ended up... Like, giving him props twice for becoming a Patreon. (laughs)
2: Well, speaking of Patreons, our new Patreon this week is... (gasps) Oh, it's cold. Oh, so cold. So alone. Oh, man, it's just empty in here. And this week's community question, should karma reputation ratings follow ships and allow players to ditch the hot vehicle to maintain legitimate and illegitimate interest with one character? Or does it need to follow the players so everyone knows what side of the law people are on, regardless of what they're flying? Or maybe you like my system. Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at or post over on our show's thread at guardfrequency.com.
0: So how was the show? Does it get a five-star wanted level or should we consider taking it to the garage for a respray? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on this show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? Or
2: you could hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak.
0: If you're old school like us, shoot us an email to squawk at GuardFrequency.com.
3: You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind.
2: Well, that brings us to the end of episode 142 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 143 on November 1st. So be sure to keep an eye out for our shows on our website, guardfrequency.com.
3: But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything on Friday nights, ching then you can always join us live over at guardfrequency.com/slash live. We start recording around 10 p.m. Central. That Saturday is at 6 a.m. if you happen to be traveling through Istanbul.
0: Don't you mean Constantinople? Don't get him started. We already had the thing with
3: the same.
0: <laughs> do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just $1.25, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win some guard frequency goodies. We want to thank all our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution, because the more support we get, the better show we can make.
3: Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. Check out our website and look under the call sign section for details on how you can fly with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek, from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to track them out over at PriorityOnePodcast.com.
2: We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster and our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pintad, and of course, our audio engineer, Mikey. A big shout out to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit RonaldJenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Reduce
0: thrust. Time to three three zero caro one five. Squawk seven seven zero zero.
2: Crossed with postmodern future history tech, all wrapped up in a rena Renaissance Renaissance <laughs> Renaissance. Did you guys uh, yeah, give this section
3: to Jeff just to torture him?
0: Uh, yeah. No, I think I think it was a Lennon special. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
3: of course it was.
0: Um, any? Was that an animal?
3: <laughs> no, that was my squeaky chair that I keep forgetting to WD forty.
0: Okay, now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune the yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: That's contagious. BB. So, in addition to our tw- to our Peter tour, tw-
0: I'm back.
3: <laughs> <laughs> all right,
0: Sean Novo. Sean Novo. Yeah, that guy who always writes. No, it, well, yeah. how did,
3: sorry, how did Henry say him last time? Sian um, Uboy. Yeah. <laughs> oh. No no. <laughs> no, it made me really, It made me laugh when guy. he said it in, in the bloopers. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at Guard Frequency.
0: What? <laughs> what was that? Not the actual wedding address.
3: <laughs> some good stuff post on You could some sing good the whole stuff post citizen. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Uh, No, Uh, no. That
0: was not a serious (laughs) suggestion. (laughs) Who writes this stuff?